Good afternoon. It's good to see you all here this afternoon. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, and then we're going to Colossians 3. If you want to go ahead and get a head start and turn there in your Bible, feel free to do that. Um, quick announcement, I want to let you know about a special service we're going to have next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. We are um, hosting an ordination service. Um, and so let me just tell you what that is if you're not quite sure what that word means or what that means to ordain somebody. Uh, this is a time um, where the church comes together to officially and publicly acknowledge a specific calling on a person's life and, uh, and to lay hands over that person, to pray over that person as they step into this calling. And so next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock, we're going to be ordaining Jeremy Williams, our student minister. Uh, Jeremy served, there he is. Uh, as uh, he served for a full year in a pastoral residency at his previous church, um, but really desired to be ordained in his home church, which is Solid Rock. And so over the last six months or so, uh, he's been working underneath the mentorship of one of our pastors, Brian Lamb, and he's at that place in his journey where we're ready to uh, acknowledge publicly the calling on his life and to ordain him, to pray over him um, as God continues to work in his life. And so next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock, and I'll say this, even if you don't know him personally or don't have students in student ministry, this is a church celebration, so everybody's invited, and he would love for you to come be a part of that. Um, so put that on your calendars next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock in this room. All right. Uh, so we are uh, approaching the runway on the sermon series, Desires of the Heart. Whew, thank God, right? Um, I've had somebody came up to me this morning in the first service and just said, hey, I just need to ask you, are you going to be preaching at me again today? Now, uh, when I hear that, what I trust is that God is speaking to you, right? And, and I don't have special microphones in your home or video cameras. I don't know if that lands on you. That's between you and God. That's not me. Um, but it has been a challenging sermon series because we've been um, so far looking very honestly at, um, at our lives, looking at our hearts, the things that capture the desires of our hearts, and, and looking at um, how good things that God has created for us to enjoy, like, like relationships or, or careers or, or even hobbies, how these good things, when they become ultimate things, things that we go to for security or peace or joy, how these good things become idols. And so today we're going to start uh, in Romans chapter 1, which is actually where we began this sermon series, looking at the essence of idolatry and what it actually is. And so we're going to start in Romans 1 this morning in verse 21. So uh, let's start here and then we'll, we'll go from, from here. So verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, to understand what's going on, you've got to know who the they is, right? Who is the Bible talking about? Well, the they here, you need to think about humanity as a whole. That's us. We're the they here. So they, even though they knew God, did not honor him or give thanks to him, they became futile in their minds and thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature or that which has been created rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Now, this 
very convicting passage describes a lot of things. It describes the brokenness in our world. We looked at this passage even um, after the, the Las Vegas shooting and, and how can things like this happen in the world. And we, and we recognize together that we are living in a fallen world. It's broken. Something's wrong with it. Right? In light of what happened even uh, last Sunday down in South Texas, we were reminded constantly that something is amiss. Something is broken in the world around us. Now, it's easy for us to look at those big events, to look at those particular individuals and say, something's wrong with them. But if we're not careful, we'll do that and, 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 and neglect of looking at ourselves and not realize that what Romans 1 is describing is not only what was wrong with um, the, the Las Vegas shooter or the terrorists who attacked, uh, you know, the, the, the twin the, the 9-11 attacks, like that's describing what's wrong with me too. That's why I'm a lousy husband. That's why I struggle as a dad. That's why I'm not always a great friend is because I'm included in what's being described here in Romans 1. And so the essence of idolatry is exposed here essentially as worship. Now, the way the Bible describes our hearts were created and designed to worship, but the thing is there's, we can only worship one thing at a time. I know that's kind of that's confusing, especially in a world today where we're multitaskers, where we've, we believe that we can do lots of things at the same time, right? So like you're talking to me, and, and I'm listening. Go ahead. Right? Yeah, I, I hear you. Right? And, and, and what the Bible would say is, listen, you might think you can multitask, but when it comes to worship, it's one or the other. Jesus says it this way. He talks about, he uses money as an illustration. He says, hey, you can only serve God or serve money. You can't serve them both. You'll end up loving one and hating the other or hating the one and loving the other, right? You can't worship more than one thing at a time. And so what Romans 1 says is that we, humanity, we've exchanged something. Did you see that word? Showed up twice. We've exchanged something. The image of the God who created everything, we've exchanged that for what? Things which he's created. And our worship has shifted from worshiping the creator to worshiping the creation. See, this is what happens when anything good in our lives becomes an ultimate thing. Now, we don't sing songs to our idols very often, do we? Right? We don't gather up in circles and talk about how awesome our idols are. But yet, functionally, idols capture our hearts. Functionally, the idols become our objects of worship because it's what we give ourselves to. And so this series has been somewhat of a journey for us, going from, from idol to idol. We've looked at the idol of comfort, the idol of control, the idol of relationships, the idol of performance. That was a convicting week. We looked at several different idols along the way, and so the question isn't, isn't anymore, I wonder if I have an idol in my life. We're past that point, right? right? We're past the point of wondering if there's an idol. Now we're at the place where we need to ask the question, what do I do with my idols? Right. Now I'm beginning to recognize things in my life that are competing for my worship towards God. And so now what do I do with that junk? And so we're going to look at this today in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. So, fallen humanity, there's been an exchange. Our heart's affection, our mind's attention, we were designed to worship God and Him alone. And that from that, we would be, we would be better at everything else. Right? So, let me just put this in practical terms. So if I desire to be a better husband to my wife, the way that I achieve that is I make Christ my ultimate. Because if I'll make Christ my ultimate, he'll command me to be a better husband. Right? And so I become a better dad to my children, a better husband uh, to my wife, a better friend to you when I make Jesus my ultimate. That's what I was created 
to do. The problem is I've exchanged Jesus for other stuff, and now I'm horrible at all of it. Anybody else? Now I find myself not doing the things I want to do and not doing the things I should be doing. And so Colossians 3 is going to give us some direction, give us some hope on what to do when we begin to discover idols in our hearts. Starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, what Paul just laid out for us is what the Bible calls repentance. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding when we hear the word repentance. Most of us, we picture maybe a, um, an old school uh, tent revival and there's a preacher in a suit with a Bible slamming on a, on a pulpit saying, repent, right? Turn from your wickedness, repent. Without any real clear understanding or, or explanation of what that word means. And Colossians 1 just, or 3 just laid it out for us. Now, there were four commands given to us in that passage, okay? So if you actually read this in the original language, Paul lays out four commands for us, and let me just tell you what they are real quick, okay? First, he said, seek. Seek the things that are above. Then he said, set your mind, your mind on things that are above. And then he said, put them away. That was a command, put them away. And then the last thing he commanded was put them to death. Now, we're going to walk through each of those words, what it means, and how it lays out for us the idea or the concept of repentance. First of all, let me ask you this. So we've talked about before, repentance is a turning, right? Turning from to something. Um, so if that's what repentance is, I have to ask myself the question, um, so what happens first? How do I do that? How do, I, how do I turn from something into something else? It almost seems like I've got to turn from before I turn to, right? Like I can't turn to something until I turn from it, but that's not actually how this works. Before Paul tells us to put it away or put it to death, what does he say first? Seek. And so my turning away from my sin or me turning away from my idols, it's the indirect action. It's what's left over when I turn my affections towards Christ. So the first thing he says is, seek. Seek Christ. And so here's what we have to understand. Here's the baseline struggle. If you wonder why, why do I keep struggling with my sin? Why do I keep struggling with putting my idols down? Why do I keep struggling on being a better Christian? Here, here, I'm going to lay it out for you. And this is going to be brutally honest, and it may even hurt. It's because you don't see Jesus as better. Now think about that. Me, in my struggle with sin, 
right? What's happening in that moment is I don't see Jesus as better. Because, see, I can't just quit sinning in my life by saying, you know what, I'm done sinning, I want to quit sinning, so no more sin. That doesn't work. Anybody tried that? It doesn't work, right? So I've got to see something better that causes me to turn to. You follow me? So I've got to see Jesus as better than my idols, whatever my idol is. If my idol is my career and all of my identity is wrapped up in my career, and for me, I go to my career for joy. I go to my career for peace and satisfaction and fulfillment and acceptance, and and I'm all wrapped up in my career. I've got to see Jesus not as an alternate to my career. I've got to see Jesus as better. That's what's going to compel me to turn from and turn to. And so that's what Paul's getting at here. We've got to see Jesus as better. This is how uh, Tim Keller, he's a, uh, a pastor, theologian, author. He says it this way, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol, or it's never going to work. Right? If Jesus is not better, you're never going to turn from anything to him. You've got to see him is better. And so Paul says, here's what you need. You need to seek things that are what? Above where Christ is. If you're seeking to find your purpose in things here on earth, even good things, they're going to let you down. They're going to fail you every time. You've got to seek things that are above where Christ is. And the second command he gives us, is it stop sinning? What does he say? Now set your mind on it. So now that I've begun to turn my affections towards Christ, he says, solidify that, concrete that, set your mind on that. Don't just turn to Jesus when things get bad. Don't just turn to Jesus when your marriage is failing. Turn to him in those moments, but don't just turn. Set your mind on him, right? Set your mind on things that are above. You have to set your mind on things that are better. Now, The the next two commands he gives us are put them away and then put them to death. And so here's what's going to happen. As I turn to Christ, I begin to seek Christ, I begin to set my mind on Christ, here's what's going to indirectly happen. I'm going to begin to put those things away. Okay? So he's not just like talking about opening up a closet and then pushing your idols in there and shutting the door. Here's what that word put away means. It means to forsake or to abandon or to renounce. That almost sounds like an idea of allegiance, doesn't it? Right? To renounce something or forsake something. We know God's promise not to leave us nor forsake us. Now, he has a commitment to us. And so, essentially, if I'm going to turn to Christ, I've got to be willing to forsake, break allegiance with, renounce my idols. As I announce my love for Christ, I also, what, renounce my love for things of the earth. And then the last thing is this. He said, put them to death. How do we do that? That sounds, sounds pretty rough. So the word here, it literally means to take the life out of something. So like if you, so it'd be like walking over to something that's plugged into the wall and unplugging it. You're taking the life out of it. So how do we do that? How do we put sin to death? How do we put our idols to death? I think the answer lies um, in understanding what we do to give them life. Right? So think about that. To put them to death, we've got to look at the things we actually do in our life to give life to our idols. What are those things? 
Well, we look at what we spend our energy on. We look at the, the very valuable commodities of time and money. What do we invest our time into? What do we invest our finances into? As uncomfortable as that is, that reveals something about our priorities in life, doesn't it? Right? That's what we give life to our idols. Now listen, um, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, he's talking about a very similar thing in chapter 13 where he's talking about putting on Christ and taking off the old self. Look at what he says in, in Romans 13 verse 14. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul, if you were to ask Paul, Paul, how do you do that? How do you take life from your idols? How do you put your idols to death? He'd say, what? Well, here's how you do that. You quit making provision for your idols. Once you recognize what they are, you quit giving life to them. And you start investing those things in what? In your relationship with Christ. You see, just like the fallen world is a result of an exchange, which we read about in Romans 1, so is repentance. Repentance is the great exchange. It's saying, I'm no longer going to worship the things on earth, right? The things that I go to for joy and satisfaction and peace and comfort and security. I'm no longer going to do that. I'm going to turn instead to something I found that's better. I'm going to turn to Christ. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to set my mind on him. Now, here's the great thing. When I do that, I become a better husband. I become a better daddy. I become a better friend, right? Everything begins to what? Fall into order. Um, I want to read a description of repentance to you from uh, the guy I mentioned earlier, Tim Keller. He's got a book out called um, Counterfeit Gods, and uh, it's a book about idolatry. And here's a quote. Here's how he describes repenting. So he says this, repenting and rejoicing actually have to go hand in hand. You can't just say, I'm going to stop doing something. You've got to, like I said, turn from that and then rejoice in something you found that's better. Here's what he says. He says that repenting without rejoicing will lead to despair. However, rejoicing without repentance is shallow and will only provide a passing inspiration instead of deep change. Repentance out of fear of consequences is really not feeling sorry for your sins, but feeling sorry for yourself. Ouch. That's true though, right? Listen to what he says next. He says, repentance out of a joy for what Christ has done leads to rejoicing. To rejoice, now let's define rejoice. He's gonna do that. To rejoice is to treasure a thing. It's to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you and to reflect on its value and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. So rejoicing isn't something I do after. Rejoicing is something that leads me. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is rested and sweetened. And listen to this. And until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. See, we convince ourselves that we need all these things in life to be happy, secure, filled with joy. We become very protective over these things, don't we? Whether it's a relationship or it's a career path or it's the applause of man or whatever those idols may be, we become very protective over these things because we've convinced ourselves that we need them. 
And what happens when tragedy strikes and these things are taken away? We're devastated, right? We're left without hope. Why? Because in the end, these things make lousy gods. Dude, I've got an awesome wife. She's incredible. Somebody came up to me today after one of our services and just said, your wife is just, she's awesome. I'm like, I agree 100%. She's great. She's so good to me. I could go on and on about just yesterday how she served me in so many ways. But you know what? She's a lousy savior. She's a lousy God. Great wife, because why? Because she's made Jesus her everything, and he compels her to be a good wife. Right? Your children are awesome. I I mean, I wish my children could be more like your kids, more obedient, more respectful. I don't know how you do that. But here's the thing. As awesome as your kids are, they make lousy saviors. They can never give you the joy you're looking for in life. Right? Your career, good job. Way to work hard and make it up to the top. I'm proud of you. But here's the thing. Your job is a lousy savior. Follow me? It can never provide for you that deep need of of, of satisfaction and acceptance and those things that only Christ can provide. This is how the, the old song goes. If you know it, you can say it with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely in light of his glory and grace. See, that's what happens. When we make Jesus our ultimate, the things of earth, even the good things in our life, become strangely dim. What was once bright to us and compelled us, and we thought, I've got to have this to be happy, all of a sudden begins to lose its luster, begins to fall into order as something that was created not the creator. This is the great exchange of repentance. Now, let's not make the mistake that so many have made before us. Verse seven is gonna enlighten us to something. Verse seven reminds us that repentance is not a one-time event. It's not a one-time event. There's this false idea in the church that somehow... Once I become like super Christian, you know, like the pastor and like those elders, whoever they are, and once I become like super Christian, then all of a sudden the need to repent begins to go away. And so repentance becomes less frequent, okay? Can I just tell you that's upside down? That the more mature you grow in Christ and and, and the more you pursue him and the more you become like him, actually the more frequent you're gonna repent because of two things. One, because you're more aware of your failures and your need to repent, but two, because you increase your trust in him to say, you know what, I trust in you. And that leads you to more repentance, not less. So if you've got this idea in your mind that the elders of this church are just like so righteous and holy and gosh, I can't wait till I get there so I don't have to repent anymore, you've missed it. You missed the mark. That's not not who we are. If if anything, we're, we're trying to become more frequent in repentance. Why? Because we have to understand this. To be a Christian means you have engaged in a lifelong process that the Bible calls sanctification. It's a big word. What does it mean? It means to be set apart and made holy. See, repentance is not a one-time decision. It's a lifestyle of pursuing Christ. You know what? I need to, right now in this moment, I need to turn from and turn towards Jesus in some areas of my life. I need to do that again tomorrow. I need to wake up Tuesday and remind myself, Jesus is better. 
I need to get up on Friday morning, right? And I need to look at my schedule and I begin to think about what the priorities of the day are. I need to start by declaring with my heart, Jesus is better. Better than these responsibilities, better than all these things I'm going to do, better than all these people I'm going to engage in. He's better. It's a lifestyle. It's a, it's a lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And the only way to get there is through repentance. Turning from and turning to something better. Here's how it lays it out in Colossians 3, verse 7. In these you two once walked when you were living in them. Is that past tense, present tense, or future tense? Past tense, right? Once walked. Sounds past tense. But then what's, what's the problem is we get to verse 8. But now, present tense, you must put them away. Wait a second. I thought I already put them away. I thought I used to walk in them. What is, what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about this ongoing process of sanctification. You've trusted in Christ as your Savior. That's awesome. Now, right, don't forget, you're not who you used to be. The old you is now buried with Christ. The new you is walking every day, right? You choose. Christ is better. It's a lifelong process of sanctification. Now, I want to talk about something that doesn't get talked about very often in the church, and it's the, the role of spiritual disciplines. Okay, I know the word discipline can kind of turn us off. It's the, these are the things that we actively do as Christians to grow in our faith. Okay, so this is, just be careful here. These are not things you do to impress God or make him more proud of you. Okay, you can't do that. So don't engage in a spiritual discipline thinking, oh, I'm going to add this to my routine, and God's going to be like, woohoo, good job down there. Okay, it's not how it works. Spiritual disciplines are things that we can do, the Bible's called us to do, to participate with the work God is already doing in us. Okay, so let me just lay some of those out. Prayer is a spiritual discipline. Reading the Bible and memorizing scripture is a spiritual discipline. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. Meditation and solitude is a spiritual discipline. Even worship itself is a spiritual discipline. So what I want to do is I want to talk for just a brief minute about the role of spiritual disciplines in this process of repentance and sanctification and how all the spiritual disciplines, right, they, they impact that great exchange. First of all, let's talk about prayer, the role of prayer. Here's what prayer does for us. It takes the understanding of what God is doing in the world outside of us and it makes it very personal. So when I engage in prayer, now I'm talking to God and he's talking to me. Otherwise, I'm just watching God work out there. Right, God's working in the world, he's working, but when I stop and I pray, I'm engaging personally with the work God is doing. I'm speaking to him, he's speaking to me, and this work that God is doing becomes incredibly personal. This impacts your worship in a very significant way. So when you come into church and you stand and sing songs, you can either sing songs about things you're not familiar with, or the songs you sing are actually just an echo of your prayer life the, the week before. The things that you sing up here are things that may be different words, but they're things that you've already been expressing to God in your prayer life. And so it makes your worship very personal. We're not just gathering here to sing songs about a far-off God who does things in other people's lives. You're singing these songs, and you're thinking about what God did in your life on Tuesday and how God challenged you on Wednesday and how God spoke to you on Friday. And, and so your, your prayer life as a spiritual discipline significantly impacts your worship by making it personal. I want to talk about the role of the Bible, a really important part of your spiritual journey. 
We don't open the Bible and read it to become smarter. It won't make you smarter. You can find wisdom in the Bible, but it won't increase your, um, your aptitude. We don't read the Bible to become smarter. We don't memorize Bible verses so we can go to Bible drill and win, you know, win some awards. So what is the role of the Bible? Why do we read from it? Why do we encourage people to read from it? So the, what the Bible does for us is it paints an accurate view of who God is. Okay, so right now, outside of the church, outside of the Bible, the world is painting a picture of God with the lowercase g. And for most of the world, um, those who are not saved, God is, he's rude, he lacks compassion, he's not fair, he's not loving, he's disengaged. Okay, that's the, the way the world would paint the picture of who God is. But when we read the Bible, what happens is God begins to paint a portrait of who he truly is, right? And so we talked about earlier how we've got to turn from something to Jesus because we see him as better. The Bible paints that picture for us. We open it, and, and what God does is shows us who he really is. And what happens is it begins to stir our hearts and our hearts' affection towards him when we go, oh my gosh, he loved me that much? He sent his son to, to die for me? We read that and it awakens us to something, something better. The Bible paints this beautiful portrait of who God actually is. So you come to me and you say, I just, you know, I have this, this, I just don't know how God could be loving. I just don't know how God could be loving. My, one of my first questions to you will probably be, well, where, where are you at right now in reading the Bible? What, where, like, where are you reading? Well, I'm not. Okay. Where are you going to get the accurate picture of who God is if you're not opening up his word and letting him describe himself to you? Like the scriptures are, are what open up our eyes to see God for who he actually is. Now, let's talk about fasting for a moment. This is probably going to be foreign to some of you. So fasting, it's a biblical spiritual discipline. Um, it's a way of, of saying no to the flesh and saying yes to God. Here's, here's how I would, I would maybe pitch that to you today. Fasting, refraining from eating for a period of time, whether it's a day, three days, seven days, 21, 40 days. I, I know people who've done all those, okay? So it's not just a fairy tale to fast for 40 days. Good friends who have fasted for 40 days, legitimately, okay? But here's what happens. The moment you engage in fasting, you turn up the sensitivity on the radar for idols. I'm telling you. I mean, it's not going to take, you don't even have to get hungry yet, and all of a sudden, idols are going to start coming to the surface, I'm telling you, fasting is a way. You, Paul said, don't make any provision for the flesh. Fasting is the opposite of that. It's saying no to the flesh for a period of time. And I'm telling you, right, refraining from food will bring up every idol of your life to the surface so you can see it, which is why prayer must accompany fasting, right? So that's, that's what fasting does for us. It allows us to see where our flesh is still in the game, trying to control our lives where we've yet to surrender to Christ. It's also an opportunity to worship. Because in those moments where you're saying no to the flesh, you're also able to say something else. Yes to Christ, you are enough. In this moment, you're better to me than food. In this moment, you're enough for me. And so fasting is part of our can be a significant part of your spiritual journey. And the last thing is this. This is even more foreign than fasting for most of us. It's the idea of solitude and meditation. The Psalms call us to meditate on God and meditate on the scriptures. Here's the problem. 
that concept is almost completely lost in the world today, right? Because the, so I think of it like this. My brain is like a, that hamster wheel that keeps spinning. It's just spinning. And so what happens is anytime that thing starts to slow down a little bit, we need something else to engage in, right? So we, we do this, right? We do something else. We, 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 don't like this, we don't like the sound of silence, do we? So as soon as it starts to slow down, so, oh, something's not right here. I, I must be doing something wrong. I got to do something. So we get busy doing something to get that wheel spinning again. And we don't like for it to quit spinning until it's time to go to sleep. And then we wake up and we rev that thing back up. Meditation and solitude is the practice of letting the will slow down and stop. That's scary for a lot of us, isn't it? I don't know how to do that. I, I know. A, we don't necessarily know how, but B, we don't create the margin in our life to do it. Right? So some of us might say, you know, I'm going to try that this week. I'm going to set aside like, like 20 minutes, just solitude. Okay, go Try it this week, and more than likely, you'll come back and say, you know what, for the first minute or two, I was there, I was good, but then my mind began to wonder. And I just got distracted, I couldn't focus, I, I don't think it's going to work for me. Here's what I encourage you to do. Set aside more time. What happened? You didn't let it quit spinning. Solitude is the art of allowing your mind to rest. And that's foreign to most of us. Can you imagine that? How long would it take for your mind to quit spinning? Difficult, right? Now, here's what solitude does for us. It gives, us the, it gives the opportunity for the voices of those idols to quit talking. And for you to set your mind on Christ and him alone. What do you do when you're in solitude? Nothing. You be still. That's what you do. You be still and you know nothing except for Jesus. And let all the other voices come to a halt and only he remains. You know what you might need to do? You might need to set aside more time. Maybe 20 minutes isn't enough. Maybe 30 minutes. Maybe a half a day. Maybe your whole lunch period. I don't know. But if you're going to engage in the spiritual discipline of solitude and meditation, you've got to create the margin in your life to do it. Now, two things. One. The danger here, I've already mentioned, I'm going, to re, I'm going to restate it. Spiritual disciplines do not make you a better Christian or make God more proud of you. God is not going to be watching you, and he's hoping you get solitude down. And when you get it down, oh, look, solitude, right, come look, another one got solitude down. Like, it's not how it works. You're not going to impress God with spiritual disciplines. Here's what happens, but here's what you, here's what you are doing. You're engaging in the work he's doing in you. He's painting an accurate picture of himself in your heart and your mind, something that compels you, something to seek after, something to, to set your mind on. The spiritual disciplines paint a beautiful portrait of who God actually is. Now, we're going we're gonna to shift here now to just some self-inventory. Um, if you haven't been with us in the sermon series, we, we stop at the end of the sermon. I threw out a bunch of questions for you to ask yourself. And, uh, and so we're going to do that today, but what's different is today we're not talking about any one specific idol, okay? We're just talking about the idea of idolatry in general. We're going to look at um, our imaginations, we're going to look at our pursuits, we're going to look at our emotions, and we're going to end with our own salvation. So what do we mean by looking at our imaginations, okay? So this is, this is what we talk about when we're talking about setting your mind on something, 
So let's ask this question. What do you daydream about? Well, nothing, because I'm always so busy and I don't have time to daydream. Oh, but if you did, what would you daydream about? When you get stuck in traffic or stuck in line and you can't do anything but just sit there and, and, and right, you've already been through the whole news feed on Instagram and Facebook and looked at all your Snapchats and you're just out of stuff to do and your mind begins to wonder. What does it wonder to? What does your imagination drift towards? What does your mind wonder to effortlessly when nothing else is occupying its attention? So, like at times, I don't know if you've ever struggled like to pray and you get started and you're like praying and I'm praying and praying and all of a sudden you find yourself distracted, okay? So, so I would ask you, what is it that your mind is drifting to? Just think about it. Could potentially be, could, could potentially be an idol there, right? Not saying there is, just something to think about. How about this one? This one's a little more personal. What potential scenarios or scripts do you write in your mind when you're daydreaming? In other words, when you begin to kind of daydream about something, those, those stories where you're the hero, what's the script that you're writing? Think about it. Our imaginations can reveal a lot about our idolatry, right? The things that we're naturally drawn to or effortlessly drawn to. Um, how about our pursuits in life? What do our pursuits tell us or reveal to us about our idolatry? Here's the first question is, what do you overspend your money on? Notice I didn't ask, do you overspend your, your money? I assume we probably all of us do, most of us do. If not, you're awesome, but the rest of us, we struggle. So I'm not asking you, do you overspend? I'm asking, what do you overspend on? What is it that when you get to that line of, okay, I've spent enough on this for the month, causes you to take another step forward and overspend? Okay? What do you overspend on? How about this one? What do you sacrifice your time to attain or achieve. Okay, so you find yourself maybe like you're out of time for priorities in life. What are you giving your time to, right, that's, that's more important? What takes up so much of your, I'm sorry, let me ask it this way. What do you long for and desire to have that you will go to great costs or take great risks to get it? Where are you risking right now in your life? Where are you taking great risks and going to great costs? All these questions are helping us reflect and think about what is the object truly of our worship? How about your emotions? What are you, what are you most afraid of losing? What are you most afraid of losing? What is it in your life right now that you're most afraid of losing? What makes you disproportionately angry? We've talked about that already in the series. Something happens that would normally frustrate you, and you go, oh, that makes sense. That'd frustrate me too. But instead of frustrating you, it takes you from like zero to 60. Flip your lid, disproportionately angry. What makes you anxious or afraid? How do you respond to unanswered prayers or frustrated hopes? Just some things to think about. Our emotions can reveal a lot about the objects of our worship, right? And last, but certainly not least, I want to talk about salvation. Now, I want to make a clarification here. 
I'm not talking about that moment where you trust in Jesus as your savior and you have a profession of faith. What I'm talking about is functionally what happens after that. Okay, so it's one thing for me to say, I walked an aisle, I trusted in Jesus, I prayed at camp, my mom and dad led me in prayer. I trusted in Jesus as my savior, eternally secure. This Holy Spirit work is being in me, but something different happens though a week later when my mind begins to wonder, my heart begins to wonder, and I begin to trust in different things. Right, so I became a Christian as a, as a young boy, young, right? But in that moment, I said, I trust in Jesus as my Savior and him alone. But what happened is all throughout my spiritual journey from time to time, I've trusted in other things. I went through a significant period of time where I really trusted in the applause of people. I felt like I had to have it or I couldn't be whole. I couldn't be satisfied. I couldn't be, my life didn't have meaning unless people were applauding me. So Verbally, I was saying I trusted in Jesus, but functionally, I was trusting in the applause of men. Okay, so I'm talking about the functional trust of our hearts. Here's some practical ways to think about it. What do you believe right now would truly make you happy? If you're struggling to have joy or be happy in your life, what are you convinced would make you happy? What do you believe would make you into an acceptable person? When you think about who you want to be versus who you are, what do you think would make you acceptable or a better person? To what or who do you look for or look to for life-sustaining security and acceptance? And here's the final question I think we all should ask ourselves. Has something or someone besides Jesus taken over your heart's functional trust, loyalty, and delight. So that's what we're asking here. That's the exchange. Something takes the place of Jesus in my life. I want to I land here today, and what we're going to do next week is we're coming back for three services of baptism and testimonies next Sunday. I'm so excited. We've got, I think, at least five baptisms lined up. There'll be some in every service. Um, we've got uh, testimonies. I think we're somewhere around seven right now. People are going to be sharing um, some uh, in one of the services and some in all the services. Um, we even have a testimony coming from our missionary family in the Philippines. They've been listening online, and they're going to be sharing. And so next Sunday is going to just be a celebration, a lot of rejoicing in what God has done. Before we get there, though, let's do this today. Let's land here. First of all, if you're here today and you've not come to that place in your life journey, okay, where you've trusted in Jesus and him alone for the first time, listen, we want you to do that today. This is what it means to be saved, to get to that place where you realize, you know what, I need to let go of this stuff, my security in this stuff, my joy in these things, and take hold of the hand of Jesus and him alone, to trust that his death was enough, his resurrection is enough for me, and that by trusting in him, I can have eternal life with God and forgiveness of sins. If that's where you are today, I'm gonna ask you to do something courageous. Um, when we stand to sing in a minute, our prayer partners will be down at the front, and at the back, I'm going to ask you to come talk to one of them and just walk up to them and say, listen, I want to know how to become a Christian. And they'll talk with you and pray with you and answer any questions that you have. For the rest of us here who've made that decision, um, here's what I want to encourage you to think about. First of all, maybe just spend some time before you stand to sing thinking about um, this idea of forsaking. Maybe your struggle to rid your life of idols is that you haven't been willing to forsake. Right? You can't just turn with one hand on your idol and the other one to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You've got to be willing to forsake. 
And so maybe that's what you need to think through today. What is there, maybe there's something in your life that you haven't been willing to forsake or to abandon or renounce. Maybe today you realize, you know what? I need to create more margin in my life for spiritual disciplines. Don't just take spiritual disciplines and add them to your busyness. That's gonna frustrate you. You're gonna come out next week and go, that didn't work, okay? I, I'm telling you straight up, you've gotta create margin for these things. You've got to create space in your schedule to invest time. Remember, we have to give life to it. So we've got to give it time and energy and effort and create margin in our lives for spiritual disciplines. If you want more insight or help on like fasting or meditation or how to read the Bible um, or how to have a vibrant prayer life, as a staff and our elder body, we're here for you to help you in that journey. We want to hear from you. We want to walk with you through that uh, process, okay? And so maybe for you, it's just thinking about where do I need to create margin in my, in my life? I'm going to invite our worship team, if you guys don't mind, to come back up. I'm going to invite our prayer partners to, um, to make their way to their place in the room. And then I'm going to pray, and we're going to respond. Well, let's do that. Um, Father, thank you for the reminder today that your arms are not only open wide, God, it's, it's within your presence. It's coming to your open arms, God, that we actually find the meaning of life. And God, so many of us have been seeking and searching and setting our mind on things, thinking that they will bring us meaning and purpose. And today, God, you've revealed to us that that simply won't work. That meaning can't be found in creation. Meaning has to be found in the creator. So God, today, would you become increasingly glorious in our minds and hearts that the things of the earth could become strangely dim. God, could you increase our understanding of who you are? Could you make more vivid and more clear your goodness to us? That today, repentance wouldn't be about simply turning away from something, but God, it would be about turning towards something that is better. So Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move through this room and through our hearts. Speak to us, do a work in us, oh God. We pray in Jesus' name.